Thanks for joining us at Faith. We hope the message you're about to hear encourages your day and draws you closer to Jesus. If you'd like to join us for service or find out more about the church, visit faith.church. That's faith.church. Well, you're definitely in for a treat this morning. Very, very honored to have uh, Dr. Boot with us, and uh, he also goes by the name Joe, which is great, so, um, but really excited to have him here. We, we do have some, some of his resources out there. Um, as, as you know, as, as we've been, as a church, been looking and saying like, okay, God, what does it mean for us to actually carry out the Great Commission right here in our city? What does it mean for us to seek the peace and prosperity of our city? What does it mean for us to, to be salt and light in a broken and hurting world? And how do we do that at every level? And, and how, how is it that we have, we have reduced the work of the kingdom back to a gathering? And that this gathering, though it is important and vital, is not the end-all, be-all of the kingdom of God being built through you, the saints. Do you believe that? And so I'm grateful for, for Dr. Joe, and I just want to give you a just quick kind of um, bio of him just, so just to, uh, to let you know kind of what he's up to and how God is using him. Um, he's a Christian thinker, cultural apolo- apologist, founder and president of the Ezra Institution for con- Contemporary Christianity. He is also a, an adjunct instructor for culture and apologetics at the Bryan College in Tennessee, he also served as the founding pastor of Westminster Chapel in Toronto for 14 years, which he has some, uh, some experiences as they walk through COVID uh, as a church and church leader in Canada. Um, he's now resident in Great Britain, and Joseph has worked in the fields of Christian apologetics, worldview, education, church leadership, and over 25 years on both sides of the Atlantic. He has spoken and guest lectured globally at numerous university events, seminaries, churches, colleges, and conferences. He regularly addresses pastors and Christian leaders as, as well as academic, medical, legal, and political professions and has publicly debated leading atheist thinkers and philosophers in Canada and the United States. He is, uh, I've, I'm growing very, uh, my heart is growing very dear of him as a friend. We spent some time together uh, last night, and, and I'm just, I'm so grateful and honored he'd be here to uh, share with us this morning. Can we welcome Dr. Joe Boot to the stage? Thank you. Thanks, bro. Have fun, man. Well, Good morning. Such a privilege for me to be here with you today, and uh, thank you, Pastor Jason, for your warm welcome. Uh, I'm always amazed when I come to America, the sheer talent pool and the gifts that you have in the church, and what a blessing to be part of your worship uh, with you today. Before we begin, why don't we just pray together? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I do have more than one jacket. Um, (laughs) Just whenever I come to warmer climes, I bring the sort of light linen one and... uh, 
didn't realize that was going to be played this morning. So there we go. <clears throat> We're going to uh, think this morning about gospel and culture, the gospel's relationship to culture. And to do that, we're going to be looking at uh, Colossians chapter 1. And so if you do have a Bible or you're looking at one of those infernal devices, um, Colossians 1, and we'll be reading from verse 15 in a moment. The central question that is confronting Christians today as we see the challenges and changes all around us in the Western world, is what is the relationship of God's word revelation to our real life in the world? What is the relationship of God's word, His revelation, to our real life in the world? When Abraham was up, I think it was on Mount Moriah, with Isaac, he had to come down and live out the reality of the promises of God in his life. When Moses went up onto Mount Sinai and he received God's law, he didn't stay up there. He had to come down and lead the people of God. And when we come together as God's people, in a sense, up onto the mountain, to be refreshed and renewed and strengthened and challenged and convicted and equipped and comforted and so on, we have to go back down Monday morning into our real life in the world. How does that word uh, apply? That is the, the great question that confronts Christians today, I think, in a way that we haven't had to ask for perhaps about 1,500 years. Because our culture has never been at the point of such de-Christianization and re-paganization that it is today. So we're having to confront this question afresh. That gets really to the root of the nature of religion. Religion isn't a, a, a bad word. It's not a, a dirty word. The Bible does use it. James asks the question, what is true religion? And it's interesting, the origin of the word religion, religio, literally means to, to tie or to bind. Religion is not something that we simply do on a uh, a Sunday morning when we come together and involved in sort of liturgical acts of worship in the great diversity of that that's expressed across the, the church in the West. One of the nice things for me in spending time with Jason is to learn about his time in England as well um, and uh, his, some of his experiences there. But in the, the, the church as a whole, we, don't, we can't limit the meaning of religion to liturgical acts of worship. Relegere, religio, literally means to, it's really an agricultural metaphor. It's, it's all about getting things growing and moving in the same direction. There are, of course, different religious worldviews as you look around the world. But who is at the center? We've been singing about him this morning. Who is at the center of our view, of our understanding of life and reality? Well, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. 
You know, the famous American pastor, A.W. Tozer, he once said, Christians don't speak lies, they sing them. (laughs) And sometimes we have to analyze and think through carefully what we are singing and its significance, its applied meaning for our lives. So let's look at what Paul says in Colossians. He's speaking of Christ. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For everything was created by Him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things and by Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He might come to have first place in everything. For God was pleased to have all His fullness dwell in Him and through Him to reconcile everything to Himself making peace through the blood of His cross, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Once you were alienated and hostile in your minds because of your evil actions, but now He has reconciled you by His physical body through His death to present you holy, faultless, and blameless before Him, if indeed you remain grounded and steadfast in the faith and are not shifted away from the hope of the gospel that you heard. This gospel has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I, Paul, have become a servant of it. Now, this tells us about the person who is at the center of our lives, of our understanding of all of reality, not just ecclesiastical life in the church, but of the totality of life. Notice how often the word all things and everything is used in that passage. Look at verse 20, through him to reconcile a few churchy things to himself. Or for a few things were created by him. Paul the Apostle in Romans 11 says the same thing, for from him and through Him and to Him are all things." Now that is at the root of the Christian understanding of the world, of the Christian understanding of the totality of life. That is not where we are today in our cultural moment. Commenting on the life and thought of the famous German philosopher Nietzsche, The Christian apologist G.K. Chesterton set forth a universal truth. He says, the man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. The man who thinks without proper first principles goes mad. Maybe those of you who've done a little bit of thinking about philosophy know that Nietzsche uh, did go mad. He ended his life insane. He famously said, thus spake Zarathustra, God is dead. He meant that God is dead for us. 
As far as our life in the world is concerned, God is irrelevant. And madness would seem to be a pretty apt descriptor of much of the direction of our culture today, wouldn't it? Our first principles have ceased to be Colossians 1, the Word of God for our cultural life and social order. And in fact, much of that same Word is being set aside even in the church. Instead, in the place of God's Word, our own wills, our own desires, our own understanding, our own reason is permitted to govern and to rule and to determine truth and justice and right and wrong. And as such, it's altered radically the direction of what we used to call Christendom, Western culture. A quite an insightful Canadian philosopher, there are one or two, he's dead now. His name was George Grant. He didn't know the Lord. He professed to believe in God. He didn't, he didn't know the Lord, but he understood the situation facing the West very well. And in a sense, his thought has been summarized in this way, George Grant, justice is understood to be something strictly human, having nothing to do with obedience to any divine command or conformity to any pattern laid up in heaven. Moral principles, like all other social conventions, are something made on earth. Human freedom requires that the principles of justice be the product of human agreement or consent. That is, they must be the result of a contract. And these principles must therefore be rooted in an understanding of the interests of human beings as individuals, rather than in any sense of duty or obligation to anything above humanity. The terms of the contract may well change as circumstances and interests change, but the restraints free individuals accept must always be horizontal in character rather than vertical. In a sense, he simply meant this. Vertical accountability is that which recognizes a, an individual and corporate responsibility to God. And he says, what's happened now in our society is we reject any such vertical accountability, and we now say that oh, the only kind of accountability is horizontal. It's just a social contract, and we'll update that as we see fit. God is irrelevant. God is dead for us. That rejection of vertical accountability has meant we have conferred on ourselves the contractual right to do all kinds of things. Here's a short list, by no means exhaustive. We've got the contractual right to redefine our very biology and gender irrespective of our creational chromosomes. You know, whether you're male and female is written into every cell in your body. To the right, really, to murder through abortion. The right to polygamy and homosexual behavior. In some contexts, even bestiality in parts of Europe, they've had to revive old laws against bestiality because of its common occurrence in various parts of Europe today. We've got the right to suicide, the right 
to euthanize children and the elderly and the sick in much of Europe. Do you know, in March this year in Canada, which, had, which struck down our laws against euthanasia, the Supreme Court struck down our laws against euthanasia on the basis of Section 7 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. I'm sure you don't know anything about it. Why should you? It's a useless document. Proved utterly useless to us over the last few years. Caveats all of our fundamental freedoms and rights as basically under Section 1 if the government thinks that's appropriate. We struck down our laws against euthanasia on the basis of the right to life. And as of March this year, we're vastly expanding euthanasia to the point where minors' children will be able to euthanize themselves if they're depressed. The elderly and the sick are vulnerable. They're fleeing parts of Europe to get away from the euthanasia laws. We've got the right to redefine marriage, the right to prostitution and pornography, the right to suppress the worship of the living God, the free speech of Christians, the right to blasphemy, and much, much more besides. And this is dressed up in the garb of freedom of human dignity. It's done in the name of human dignity, but it's really all about radical autonomy. And in the process, faithful Christians are being marginalized and oppressed and arrested. Some of my pastoral colleagues in Canada in the last few years were even imprisoned for opening their churches. They went to jail. The uh, the Swiss historian in the 19th century, a great historian of culture, Jacob Burkhardt, he said, we live in an era of revolutions. And he predicted, and I quote, a radically egalitarian democracy would not lead to individual liberty and responsibility, but to a pretentious mediocrity and a new type of despotism. And so few would deny today that Western moral principles are shifting like sand beneath our feet. There's a metamorphosis going on then of the church's relationship with the surrounding culture. It's happening before our eyes. I'm not even 50 years old yet, not quite. Next month. <laughs> and I can myself remember a very different world. And I'm still relatively young. I like to think so anyway. Hair's getting a bit thinner. But Many, even though, despite what's going on in the culture, many leaders within the life of the Western church, though, have forsaken anything res resembling scriptural historical understandings of our world-transforming faith, the kind of faith that led men like William Wilberforce to pursue moral revolution in the United Kingdom, the abolition of slavery. You know the last letter that John Wesley, the great revivalist in England, ever wrote was to William Wilberforce to urge him on in the struggle for justice and righteousness in the name of Christ. Don't hear much about those things anymore. 
This is the challenge. Okay, well, you don't need to be a genius. You just need a set of ears and a pair of eyes to understand all of that. But let's think just for a moment about the meaning of culture. Because culture is a very overused word. You know, there's youth culture, there's arts culture, sports culture, political culture, etc., etc. What's the real meaning of it? Well, culture, the English word culture and agriculture, actually derive from a Latin root, no big surprise there, cholere. And they're related to the word cultus. Cultus, culture. That gives us a direct association with worship. We talk about, remember, the cults. We think of, for example, Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witness as cults, cult worship. At the foundation of the meaning of culture is worship. And culture is perhaps best understood as the public expression of the worship of a people. What goes on all around us are simply our applied beliefs, our beliefs about life and the world being put into action. That's what culture is, at least sociologically, that's what it is. Culture is a state of being that is constantly being cultivated. You know, when I was a, when I was a boy, I remember my <clears throat> grandparents talking about somebody so-and-so down the road who was a cultured individual. A way we used to think about people. That meant somebody had been well-raised. They were cultured, appropriately educated, and so on. Well, this is, there, is a, there is a moral and intellectual tilling that's going on in your mind and heart every day. It happens through school. It happens through media, through the books you read, through the movies you watch. There's a constant tilling going on in your mind. Seeds are being sown, and then a harvest comes up, and it forms, if you look at the older definitions of culture, a type of civilization. Culture is also a type of civilization, and it's transmitted to us. So it's not just purely an individual thing. These things are tr transmitted to us through the family, through the arts, through education, through the law, law is a teaching device, teaches you values. When you see radical changes in law in a country, you're seeing a change of moral values. Actually, you're seeing a change of gods. The source of sovereignty is changing. Moses is inscribed on the walls of the Supreme Court building in this country because we used to believe that God's law was that which held all human law to account. There's a, a very brilliant philosopher, a Christian philosopher in the 20th century. His name was Hermann Doyeverd. He was a Dutchman. And he said this. He said, the religious motive of a culture can never be ascertained from the ideas and personal faith of the individual. It is truly a communal motive that governs the individual even when one is not consciously aware of it or acknowledges it. In other words, you may not have thought these things through in detail. That's okay. You're being shaped constantly by the culture all around you even when you don't realize it. Your thinking's being shaped by it. 
Let me illustrate this really practically for you. If you go to Saudi Arabia today, if you get on a plane and land in Riyadh, or you go to Pakistan or Indonesia, what kind of a culture will you experience? I think I heard somebody whisper Islamic. That's correct. <clears throat> Some of my own family, my own parents, lived in the Islamic world for about 17 years. I've spent a good deal of time in that part of the world myself. You will experience Islamic culture. You know where you see it? It's in the dress code, the hijab. It's in the diet, halal food. It's in the law, Sharia law. It's in the education, in the madrasas. It's everywhere. It governs all social life. You experience Islamic culture. If you go to much of India today, you know what the dominant worldview in India is? Hinduism. And it's there in the dress code. It's there in the architecture. It's there in the social order. Do you know that in, within Hinduism, because of the caste system, the social order is a caste system, somebody's surname will tell you what caste they belong to. If you go to North Korea today, much of China, what kind of a worldview, what kind of a, uh, a culture are you going to encounter? Marxist culture. If you come to the West today and you experience Western culture, what, what do you find? I'll tell you what you find now. You experience a secular humanistic culture deeply influenced by pagan spirituality that still displays the cultural vestiges of Christianity. They're still there. The vestiges are still there. If you come to my home, England, I was born and raised in England, lived in Canada for 20 years, back in, back in England now. You see spires, church spires, in every town and village, usually more than one, they represented the center of meaning for every community. That was the significance of it. The most expensive buildings were church buildings. Now they're government buildings. Many of these churches are in a state of decay and steep decline. The cultural vestiges of Christianity. But the Christian faith is no longer giving clear direction to the development of our society. And this means that a spiritual crisis has emerged at the foundation of our cultural life. That's why there's so much division now here in America and across the West. A spiritual crisis has emerged. We no longer sense unity under God. This radical uprooting is all around us, and it takes us back to, I think, probably the easiest and most memorable definition of culture, religion externalized. It's your faith translated into each area of life. Now, in Scripture, we can think a bit about the direction of culture. In biblical categories, Culture is what human beings make with God's creation. Grapes, creation. Wine, culture. 
sheep, creation, sweaters, culture. Culture is what human beings make of God's creation. Now, think about our first parents set in the garden of God at the very beginning of creation as kingly priests. They were priests in God's temple, His cosmic temple of creation. And they were placed there to worship and to serve, to rule and to subdue, to turn God's creation into a God-glorifying culture. The culture didn't come shrink-wrapped and microwavable. You know, Adam didn't have AI. I'm sure on, within a week, Eve sort of woke up saying, you know what, it's pretty damp in the morning underneath me. Do you want to build a structure? Something that get us off the ground a bit. You see very quickly in the book of Genesis that animal husbandry and metallurgy and the various arts and music, they start to be developed. Cultivating everything according to the will and purpose of God, that was the nature of worship. Now, that command to rule and subdue, to worship and serve, has never been rescinded by God. It's only ever been repeated. He repeated it to Noah. Jesus repeats it effectively at the Great Commission. Go into all the world. Actually, he doesn't start there. That's where we usually begin. That's where we make the mistake. Actually, Jesus begins by saying... All authority in the ecclesiastical sphere, oh no, that's not there, sorry. All authority in heaven and in earth belongs to me. Not some authority, not authority just over personal devotions, but all authority in heaven and on earth, he says, is mine. Therefore, because of that, you can go and disciple nations. Interestingly, not simply individuals, anthropoi, but ethnoi, nations. You can just go and disciple the nations and teach them everything I've commanded you. That would be an incredibly arrogant thing to do if we were going on our own authority, wouldn't it? Well, we're going to go over to other countries and tell them how they're going to behave? No, it's because all authority belongs to Jesus Christ, that missionaries can go to Tanzania or wherever else and give up their lives for the gospel. The great theologian Herman Bavinck, speaking about Genesis 1.26, he said this, listen closely, Genesis 1.26 teaches us that God had a purpose in creating man in His image, namely that man should have dominion. If we now comprehend the force of this subduing, this dominion, under the term culture, we can say that culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after His image. Culture in its broadest sense is the purpose for which God created man after His image. You see, if you are an image bearer, and you all are because I can see you're all human, if you're an image bearer, this task is inescapably bound to you and your life. You can't say, oh, interesting sermon this morning, that's not really for me. Everything you do in every area of your life is shaping the culture. 
in our parenting, in our vocations, in our marriages, in our civic life. Every single aspect of our lives is shaping the culture. We will turn both the visible and invisible materials of God's creation into culture, either as covenant keepers or covenant breakers as we each stand in relationship to God. That's inescapable. Obedience or disobedience. You know, the image of God language is really a directional idea more than it is a structural idea. Imaging God. The reason God forbids idolatry is He's already made an image of Himself. You. He's already made an image of Himself. When you see people messing around with human beings and their nature, it's because we're trying to reinvent God. We're trying to image a different concept of the divine. And then that concept is applied to culture because we become like that which we worship. And Paul the Apostle makes this antithesis in cultural life very, very clear in Romans chapter 1. He basically tells us there's only two directions for culture. How does Paul put it? You remember? They exchanged the truth about God for the lie. It doesn't actually say a lie. It says in the original language, the lie. What's the, what's the lie? Do you, remember, do you know what the lie is? It was that first original lie to our parents in the garden of God when Satan came along and he said, <clears throat> has God really said? No, you won't die. You will be as God's. You will be as God, knowing or defining for yourself good and evil. And Paul says they exchanged the truth about God for the lie, and they worshipped and served the creature, something created, rather than the Creator, who is blessed forever. In other words, we either worship and serve the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ, or we worship something created, even if it's an ideology of human beings. We're not just talking about the sun or totem poles. We're talking about human ideas. Remember the Apostle Paul says, we cast down all vain imaginations, every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and we take every thought captive in obedience to Christ. The worship of some aspect of creation, the Bible calls idolatry, and Paul goes on to show that it leads to cultural decay. It follows from that that there is no such thing as a neutral culture. There's no neutral insti human institution. Your family isn't neutral with regard to God. No university is neutral with regard to the Lord Jesus. No government, no civil order is neutral with regard to the claims of Jesus Christ. Such a thing is impossible. Now, it's true that Christians who worship and serve the Creator and unbelievers who deny the Lord Jesus Christ pursue many of the same cultural tasks. I understand that. I understand that unbelievers get married. 
write music, begin human institutions, practice medicine, do fine arts, make films, and so on and so forth. But let's take music. The structure of the musical notation may remain the same, but the direction of the music is going to be very different. Which slide are we on right now? Can I have the one with the... Yeah, do you know who those two people are? Well, the one at the bottom is uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, and I think at the top that's Lady Gaga. Now, <clears throat> they're using the same B flat, the same C major. The structure is the same, but the direction of the music is altogether different. Take the structure of creation for a moment. The structure of something concerns God's creation laws and pattern that pertain to it, whether that's the family or the church or the state. The direction of something concerns the religious orientation that they have. What is the orientation of those structures? There are many structures in God's creation, but there are only two directions oriented towards God or idolatry. That's true in, the, in marriage, family, church, science, art, civic life, political life, law, and everything else besides. We seek to either glorify God in each area of our lives, or we have no central place for Christ and His revelation. Now, that distinction between structure and direction is important because it just recognizes the reality of the problem that the Bible calls sin, the reality of our fall, of our alienation from God, that sin has affected all human activities. It's affected the root of our being, and therefore it affects every aspect of life. Take marriage, for example. God's ordained structure for marriage is still exactly what it was at the beginning of creation. When Jesus was asked about marriage, he didn't say, <clears throat> well, wait a sec, um, let's just review the various views of marriage in the Greco-Roman world before I comment on that. Let's review the structure of the Greek concept of marriage and sexual relationships before I comment on marriage. He didn't even get embroiled in the argument between the two schools of thought amongst the Pharisees. He said he went back to the beginning of creation. Why? Because God's law order for creation is still what it was at creation. The structure of marriage is the same, but the direction of the hearts of those in the marriage relationship is going to be different if we're unregenerate and we don't know the Lord, that's going to be turned in an apostate direction. A Christian marriage looks, should look different from the marriage of an unbeliever in terms of its direction, even if its legal structure is the same. And this is true of every area of life, even political life, for example. The norm for the life sphere of the state is the same as God has always intended it to be. The difficulty in political life is that the hearts and the convictions and the ideologies of those involved may be hostile to God. So as a pastor, when 
a couple came to me and said, or an individual came to me and says, my marriage has failed. It wasn't marriage that failed, was it? No, I know what they meant. But it wasn't marriage itself that failed. It was the issue of the couple, the problems, the sin in the lives of both, one or the other or both. We don't say, oh, because there's a bad marriage over here, let's get rid of marriage. If we say, here's a failed state over here, we don't say, let's get rid of civil government. If there's awful music over there, we don't say, let's quit music altogether. What do we say? Well, they need redirecting. Redirecting towards righteousness, towards God's original intention. If there's corrupt police officers, we don't say, let's get rid of the law. If there's bad judges, we don't say, let's get rid of the magistrates altogether. But they must be redirected in terms of faithfulness to God. In short, all these cultural challenges are at root religious problems of the heart. We have to understand that if we're going to understand what's going on in our culture today. Otherwise, we just always remain completely at the surface. Let me conclude, don't get too excited, there may be a few more minutes. <laughs> Let me conclude by talking a bit about the transformation of culture. We've talked about the gospel a bit, we've talked about the meaning of culture. Well, in view of all this, it's clear, it's implicit that in the Christian gospel, there is a vision for culture. In fact, the gospel is a culture because it's rooted in the worship of the living God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Actually, the fact that the gospel forms a new culture is an inescapable conclusion from the meaning of both of those terms. Let me quote to you the best-looking apologist in Britain today. Here is what he says. <laughs> if culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, listen closely, if culture is the public expression of the worship of a people, and the gospel restores man to true worship, to the creator, not the creation, then the gospel restores man to true culture, which is the kingdom of God. That's what the Bible calls it. That's why Jesus teaches us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, where? On earth as it's done in heaven. God created us to be integral beings, not to be schizophrenic, so that we have one set of values, one Lord, one truth, one governor in this building on a Sunday morning, and when we walk outside those doors, suddenly we're living under a completely different Lord and Master. No, every area of life was to be integrated under the kingship and rule of the Lord Jesus Christ. The gospel restores us to that calling that our first parents had to rule and subdue, to worship and to serve in and through the last Adam. Who was that? Jesus Christ. That's what the Bible calls him. He's the head of a new humanity. And it starts with the regeneration of our hearts, the new birth. We're born again, and that affects radical change at the core of our being. Now, if that's true, and the Bible says that you and I are salt and light, then 
we have to conclude that condi the condition of our Western culture today is, in some large measure, due to our apostasy as Christians, as a Christian church, as a Christian family from our calling. Somewhere along the line, we have to take some responsibilities, not just the nasty world out there, though we have an obligation and we failed in it. Since the so-called enlightenment, there has been a steady retreat of Christians from the various organs of culture, from education, from law, from the arts, charity, med medicine, civil government. We've surrendered one area after another to humanism, to secularism. We've retreated into, into a pietistic bubble concerned largely with just keeping souls from hell, and we've limited Christ's jurisdiction to the institutional church, and we've ecclesiasticized the Bible. You have to have your false teeth in before you try and say that. We've ecclesiasticized the Bible. We said, this is a church book. It's not a book for all areas of life. It's not a book for the world. It's not a book for everything. It's just a book for inside the church. You know what happens when we say that? We call forth the secularization of every area of life. You might say, oh, this sounds a bit political. Does politics belong in the pulpit? Well, let me tell you this. Today, we have a politicized church because we don't apply the Word of God to politics in the pulpit. It's not that there's a you see, the, what we have to do is apply Christ's lordship and word to every area of life, and that means that some of our political ideas that have never come under the lordship of Christ will then come under the scrutiny of God's word, just like every other area of our life, our personal life, our family life. We need to be challenged about it, don't we? Our family lives, because it's in here. Well, it's true that this speaks to other, every single area of life, and the way to have a politicized church is to never apply this word to politics. And then pastors become afraid to speak to the issues because they know their ch church is politicized and that people will leave or stop giving if the pastor says something from the Word of God that doesn't accord with their preconceived political ideology that's never been submitted to the Word of God. That's the challenge. The result has been the marginalization of the Christian faith, a change of religion in the public sphere. But you know, if we love our neighbor, if we love the Lord Jesus Christ, if we love God and our neighbor as He requires, then a full-orbed gospel of the kingdom is going to be important to us, a gospel for every area of life, a gospel translated into every area of life. An illustration I sometimes give to young people when I'm teaching on worldview is this. Living in Canada after coming from England, I was… Muscle cars are not common in England. Let's just put it that way. Gas is very expensive. Right, so there aren't that many big V8s on the road. And I came to Canada and I thought, I love these muscle cars. I feel like the Lord is calling me to have one. <laughs> so eventually I managed to persuade my wife to, to let me get a... I had actually had a, um, uh, a GTA Firebird, T-top, 
V8, 5.7 liter. I later had a, a Jaguar V12 as well. But one of the wonderful things about uh, the, these muscle cars is the sound. Right? I mean, men, not that women don't, can't like them too, but men generally kind of, the sound of a V8, there's nothing quite like that rumble, right? All that power in the engine. Now, the gospel is the power of God to salvation. It's got all that power locked up in it. But if you don't have a transmission, if you don't have a gearbox, you can have all that noise, all that praise, all that prayer, all that singing, all that shouting, all the noise of the power of the gospel, but it never gets translated to where the rubber meets the road, to the axle. There's never any forward motion for the kingdom because all of that power stays locked up in the engine. Now, a Christian view of the world, a biblical world and life view, is like the transmission. It transmits the power of the gospel to where the rubber meets the road. And that's what we need today for the transformation, again, of our culture. And this concern is found throughout Scripture, a whistle-stop tour in half a minute. The Bible is filled with accounts of God's servants confronting sin and idolatry and false worship and therefore transforming kings and kingdoms and cultures with the truth. Look at Moses. Moses had the temerity to confront Pharaoh. He didn't say, oh, well, Lord, you know, spiritual leaders shouldn't really confront political leaders, should they? This was the… He confronted the greatest emperor of the then known world, and he did so with a staff and his brother, Aaron. Nathan confronted King David over his adultery. Elijah confronted Ahab for his lawlessness. Daniel confronted the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar until he acknowledged the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. And it seems Nebuchadnezzar's actually converted because he declares, and I quote from Daniel 4, his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just. Jonah confronts the capital of the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh, leads to citywide repentance from the monarch down. It's always a mystery, Jonah's frustration at his successful evangelism, isn't it? Amos prophesied to the pagan nations all around in terms of the law of God. Nehemiah petitioned the king of Persia for the return of the Jews to Jerusalem. Esther intervened with Xerxes. John the Baptist confronted King Herod over God's design for marriage. The apostle Peter confronted the Jewish Sanhedrin with the ultimate authority of Christ. The apostle Paul confronts the Athenian court, Felix, Festus, Agrippa, Eventually, by tradition, Caesar himself. And you know, Jesus himself called Herod Antipas a fox, and he reminded Pilate that he would have no authority over him save it had been given to him from above. If you want to understand why these servants of the Lord 
confronted culture the way they did. I was going to read to you Psalm 2. I haven't got time. Read Psalm 2 this afternoon when you get home. Before you have dinner this evening with your family, read Psalm 2 and see what it says about King, the Messiah King, whose God has set on his holy mountain, warning the judges and the rulers of the earth to kiss the Son, that is, do homage to the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Jesus, in fact, God the Father, does not hold a referendum on the identity of His Son. The voice of the people is not the voice of God. Vox populi, vox dei is the French Revolution, not the Bible. It's not democratic as to whether Jesus is King. He is King. He is Lord. That's an objective, absolute reality. And nowhere in the Bible will you ever find God's servants calling families, fathers, kingdoms, nations, judges, rulers to be neutral with respect to Jesus. Nowhere. In sum, all worship, all lordship, all sovereignty either belongs to Christ, our Creator and Redeemer, or we're going to find the God concept somewhere here in creation, and that will be the source of truth and law and righteousness and justice instead. There's only two forms of worship, friends, and therefore only two ultimate cultural choices. And G.K. Chesterton perceived this, the implications of this for the nations of the world when he said this, it is only by believing in God that we can ever criticize the government. Abolish God and the government becomes the God. That fact is written across all human history. Wherever the people do not believe in something beyond the world, they will worship the world, but above all, they will worship the strongest thing in the world. That's why the favored idol of human beings throughout most of history has been himself in the form of the state, kings, and emperors, and Caesars. All the early church had to do not to be persecuted was to say, Caesar is Lord. Put some incense on the altar. They could have gone and worshipped Jesus in freedom. Just say Caesar is Lord and you can go in peace. Take a, it will give you a license. You can go and worship this Jesus. But they said, no, Jesus Christ is Lord. And we can expect that when we reassert the fullness of the gospel of the kingdom and we walk and live in obedience, and with grace and truth, speak the truth of the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus Christ, who is fully man and fully God, will receive his inheritance. As the prophet says, of the increase of his government and of his peace, there shall be no end. His resurrection, life, and power means finally that all men and nations will bow at the feet of Jesus. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Help us, Lord, to recover a deeper understanding of who you are, the maker of all things, the one in whom all things hold together, our redeemer, our savior, the head of the church, the head over all things. Lord, as we look at the state of our nations,
We're grieved in our hearts, but we know the gospel is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Make us faithful again to the fullness of the gospel, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to I just take just a couple moments. I, I know we're a little long, but I think it's really important, especially when you have someone like uh, Dr. Joe Boot here, uh, just a couple questions and maybe, because I know maybe some of you have some questions, what about this, what about that? And so just want to ask just a couple here. Um, so we would all say the gospel is what changes society, what changes culture. And many times there's that pushback on Yes, but I, that, that's not going to bring forth transformation, is getting, be, getting involved in culture. The first thing is they need to be saved before culture can be transformed or changed. So what, what do you say to that pushback regarding some of the things mm. that you're speaking about? Well, I think it's a both and. Yes. Yeah. So the, the point is, is that as Christians, we're required by the Lord to apply the fullness of the gospel and His Word to every area of our lives. So if I'm a Christian and I'm a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker, or I'm a judge, or I'm the president, I have an obligation as a legislator, as a doctor, as a truck driver, as whatever I may be, to apply the fullness of the gospel in my sphere of influence. So uh, that, that means that it's not just the obligation of, let's say, the, 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 the Christian who's a doctor to hold a Bible study for other doctors who might be Christian is to think through what does it mean to, be, to approach medicine from a Christian standpoint. If I'm a legislator, what does it mean to approach the law from a biblical standpoint? And the reason this is important is that um, how we hear the gospel that we're preaching to people, that we want people to be saved, is governed by what we call the plausibility structure within which we live. So people's beliefs, people's ideas about the world which, as we've seen this morning, shape cultural life. Let me give you a, qu a very quick example. When Billy Graham came to England in the 1950s, he conducted what were called the Haringey Crusades. They were so effective in bringing thousands of people together for a number of weeks, filling football stadiums, that Winston Churchill, the then Prime Minister, asked him to tend Downing Street, said, why are people coming out to hear you? Winston Churchill was a great orator. He wanted to know... Why are people coming to hear a, uh, a sort of country farm boy from America? Yeah. And uh, he said, well, it's because of the, the truth of the gospel of, of Christ. And when he preached, he could say, the Bible says in the 1950s. And people in England took notice because they went to Sunday school. The schools were broadly Christian in their instruction. A public act of worship was required by law every day in all of our schools. So the structure in which people lived, our law was broadly informed by the Word of God. So the structure in which everybody lived meant when they heard the Bible says, or repent of your sin and turn to Christ, those expressions meant something. The, the Bible says carried authority in their minds. Repentance meant dealing with our sin, which is rebellion against God. When Billy Graham came back about 35 years later in the 1980s, there was not even a fraction of the impact. Mm. Now, why was that? Was it Billy Graham lost the anointing? Could he, couldn't he preach anymore? Mm. Was, he, was he now a bad preacher? Had he lost his Bible? No, none of those things were true. It was that the, the plausibility structure within the culture had changed, so how people were hearing the gospel was different. 
So when we apply in our family and in education and in law the, the fullness of the gospel and the meaning of God's Word, like I said in, in the sermon this morning that, for example, the law is a teaching device, it teaches people values, everything that we're doing that shapes the culture is going to inform how people hear right. when we share the good news of Jesus. And if they don't have a, a life view that's been informed by the, by the gospel, then it's like going into a culture uh, like when the first missionaries, like, um, um, not, they weren't the first actually, because Thomas, the Apostle Thomas was in India early on, but people like William Carey went to India and began to proclaim. It's a much slower, longer process as you're trying to see gradual change so that people can hear the gospel aright. Mm -hmm. Because the Hindus initially just added Jesus to their hundreds of thousands of gods. Right. So that's why it's important that it's not just the gospel isn't just about me and Jesus and my personal salvation. We do need to preach to the heart so that people are regenerate, mm -hmm. and then they bring about change in their families and so forth. But we have to be doing that in our own lives in every area. And if Christians were standing with the Word of God, being bold and courageous, that would have a profound impact upon people around them, and then how they actually hear the mm -hmm. preaching of the gospel. Mm -hmm. So that's, yes, I agree. That's so good. So when you, when you hear things like this, like, hey, the Christians should be involved, they should apply God's word, they should apply their salvation in every area of their life, um, and, and we as Christians, depending on what, what our, what our, um, where we're called to be, and, and because we want to, we, we believe that legislation that's made that is according to God's word always serves humanity the best yeah. way because God, our creator, obviously has given us laws that can, that can yeah. serve us in the greatest way. When you start talking about that, why do you think there's so much pushback from and believers? I mean, it's been on the news even this week and they demonize this, this holistic view of what Jesus told us to do and they demonize it with terms like Christian nationalism and, mm. and all this. Why, why do you think there's so much pushback within the church and within the, the world that doesn't know Jesus? Mm -hmm. There, we do entire training courses on answering that question. Okay. Um, but, but, um, EzraInstitute.com. Uh, EzraInstitute.com. Yes, okay, right. we, we have a worldview program for teens Fantastic. in America yeah. now because yeah. we have an office in America. So please explore Ez yeah. Ezra Institute because we have all kinds of programs for young adults and teenagers to try and help them under understand this. Um, you often hear people say you can't legislate morality. Mm -hmm. The fact is, you can only legislate morality or what's procedural there too. Somebody's morality is always being legislated. So the, the simple fact is, is that um, somebody is always imposing, uh -huh. right, a yeah. certain moral framework yeah. on society and culture. The yeah. question that we as Christians have to answer is, do we believe that what Jesus taught and said when he summarized the law of God, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, Paul says in Romans 13, that love is the fulfillment of the law. He lists a number of commands yeah. from the Decalogue, from God's law. He says, if you want to love people, this is what it looks like. Right. So God's law is loving. So if we love our neighbor, we will want God's order, God's structure to be that which informs the life of our neighbor, not Marxist, Marxist law mm. or Islamic law or some other law, but the law of Christ. Right. Um, now, unfortunately, uh, uh, the way our culture hears that now um, is through these pejorative labels, right? That, well, the, these are sort of radical, sort of 
Taliban version of the Christ Christians want to run around imposing um, uh, their theocracy on, on us. Well, <clears throat> my response to that would be, look, every society is a theocracy. Every society. Mm -hmm. it, it, just governed by different gods. I mean, uh, um, vox populi, vox dei, the vo voice of the people is the voice of God, is a theocracy. Every society holds to a principle of sovereignty behind which stands a God concept. Mm -hmm. So, Again, it comes down to, do we want Christ as Lord, or do we want some tyranny to, to, be, to, to, to be Lord in our lives? Um, we do need to be careful with some of these expressions about things like nationalism, because nationalism is a political philosophy. That is not, what the, that is not right. Scripture, right. okay? What we, we do believe that the nation, just like the family and the church, is called to be Christian. So we do believe that the nation should bow the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and submit to His Word, um, but that, does, that doesn't mean we commit ourselves to a particularly political philosophy that may have sort of primordial views of, of uh, ethnicity and all of that built into them. Um, we need to be careful that what we're concerned with is Christian culture. Right. What we're concerned with is the Lordship of Jesus Christ expressed in every area of life, not, not uh, peddling a given uh, political philosophy, right. because all political thinking has to be brought to submission to the Lordship of Christ. Yeah. But, but um, unfortunately, what's happening is you've got certain, you have a voice over here or a voice over there that is pushing, because, because we're seeing so many problems in our culture, and we're seeing our society collapsing in the West, yeah. people want somebody to blame. Right. They want something to blame. Right. And so the tendency is to become sadistic, which is we want to lay the blame on people. And so some people will say, well, it's the fault of the Jews. Mm -hmm. It's the fault of um, uh, immigrants. Mm -hmm. It's the fault of this. It's the fault of that. It's the fault of the other. Mm -hmm. Now, to have a nation, you do need to control your borders. There cannot be a nation without borders, right? Mm -hmm. um, so that matters. I'm, I, I'm not suggesting yeah. it doesn't. Yeah. God establishes and established the nations, plural. And he established, you see it par excellence when he establishes the nation of Israel, that God believes in a particular mission for nations that requires law and order and borders. But what we mustn't do is say the fault is this group of people or that group of people because the problem is our apostasy against Christ. Yeah, yeah. That if you look in America today, the source, the origin of these philosophies that are tearing us apart didn't come from Africa, mm. right? Mm. You know, Critical theories, progressive ideology, which is the roots in Marxism, came from white European intellectuals. Yeah. So it's not this group or that group. Well, if we get them, then we can solve America's right. problems. No, we need to return to Christ. That's right. When everybody has Christ, then we'll have a Christian yeah. nation. Great, yeah. fantastic. Great. Can we thank Dr. Boot for sharing with us this morning? Thank you. Um, yes, let's give him a great hand. Amen. Yes, great. If you can, just extend your hand towards him. We're going to pray for him and his ministry. Then he's going to make his way out. 
um, quickly to the table. Um, and uh, there's some great resources. Let me encourage you to do that. So let's do that. Father, we just pray that you would bless Dr. Joe's ministry, Ezra Institute, all of his leadership, that God, you'd use them to, to help us navigate these times in a way that is life-giving as you already are. And so, God, we just bless his ministry. We bless him. God, may you prosper them as they labor in what you've called them to labor in. And may we celebrate and champion them as well. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Thank you, Dr. Joe. Yeah, bless you. Yeah, yeah. Friends, I love you. God bless you. Have an amazing day. And uh, we'll see you Sunday. God right, bless you. We hope you enjoyed the message. If you'd like to watch a service live online, you can join us every Sunday at 10 a.m. at live.faith.church. For everything else, visit faith.church. That's faith.church.